Here's Johnny. Welcome to Is It Really? The podcast that challenges popular opinions about movies. I'm Brandon Sharp. I'm Zach Smith-Michaels. And I'm Mitchell. And tonight we're opening the pod bay doors. Open the pod bay doors, Zach. I'm sorry, Brandon. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is, just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Zach? Hey, guys, this episode's, this episode's on The Shining. Not 2001, so... Oh. Well, tonight we have The Shining. And so we ask, how influential was Stanley Kubrick? Zach, why don't you give us the synopsis for The Shining? Ready to shine. Jack Torrance becomes a winter caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel in Colorado, hoping to cure his writer's block. He settles in along with his wife, Wendy, and his son, Danny, who is plagued by psychic premonitions. As Jack's writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac, hell-bent on terrorizing his family. Well, before we get into the movie, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the name Kubrick? I think about the first 15 minutes of 2001 A Space Odyssey every single time. Hum the tune of the first 15 minutes. Bum, bum. That's not the right key. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. But that's not so much what I think about. I think about there's uh, that scene with the monkeys and there's no dialogue or speaking and it's sole yeah. visual storytelling. And to me, that sums up Kubrick in that you watch it and you go, what is happening? And the movie never explains it. The mm-hmm. movie never tries to make sense of it. It just presents, here's this thing that's happening. Let's move on. Yeah, the first time I watched that movie, I thought I was not going to like it because about half an hour in, you're like, oh, six words have been spoken. I don't know if I can do this for three hours. But he is someone who I think is interested in shrugging off the conventions of language. He speaks in a cinematic language, right? Yes. He he uses every shot to uh, say a lot of things. So I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's interesting with 2001. I remember the first time I saw it. I talked to Mitch after and I was like, it's tricky because I really enjoyed it, but I'm having a hard time grasping what the movie is. And Mitch said, it's literally a space odyssey. That probably wasn't my hottest take. (laughs) (laughs) Like when we say The Shining, you don't think about a light. You know what I mean? So with 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think there's a lot of, oh, what is it? And it is literally what it's saying it is. I think something I liked about what you said, too, is the idea that there's some ambiguity to his films, too, that you try to figure out what they're about. And he kind of keeps, I feel like, the audience at a distance. So, you know, he he makes these movies where you really just have to think about it over and over and over and over again. And I think a movie like 2001, it reminds me of like I, I heard of this director when I was in college who wouldn't let his audiences clap after a performance Mm -hmm. right and that really stuck with me because the idea of like clapping provides a cathartic release and it gives you permission to stop thinking 
where Kubrick's films, when there's they're so withholding and they're so distant and uh, the language is so objective, but it's hard and ambiguous and it's hard to know what's going on. There's nothing that gives you that release, that sense of, oh, I can be done thinking about this now. You kind of just have to keep wrestling with it. Yeah. Kubrick has one of my favorite quotes ever, which is, if it can be written or thought, it can be filmed. And I think a lot of times you think about, oh, this book that can never be made. But for him, it's a lot of the meaning of this, because, of course, he was an incredibly visual director. His movies still today look absolutely gorgeous. And there's still such a level of how did he do this? And, you know, with uh, the Steadicam and everything else, you just look at his accomplishments and it's amazing. But the other side of that, like he was saying, you know, if it can be thought it can be filmed, that your film can just be more than what's on screen, that there can be such a massive, huge subtext, which is sometimes more interesting than the movie. He was a photographer, right? Yeah, he started as a photographer. Yeah, I I thought so, because a lot of what I think about, too, are I just get these images like I see like the white rooms in 2001 and I see like the flooding elevator scene and the shining where blood is just pouring out into the hall. And that's what sticks out to me, too, is the way he uses just images uh, to say so much. Yeah, he was so meticulous, too. So like anytime something is specific in his movies, you know that it's not a coincidence. Right. I think for me, the first Kubrick movie I had ever seen was full metal jacket. And I think it was like probably at a pretty early age. I remember thinking it was very like heavy, just a lot. And I was overcome with similar feelings while watching The Shining. And it was just like a graphic experience, just very harsh, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think like that is that is really what I how I'm like connecting the dots just a lot like visually to take in one of my favorite movies like this is a poster in my apartment like I love this movie Dr. Strangelove Uh, Mm. I saw it in high school and it it blew me away I thought it was like one of the funniest things I'd ever seen but I remember thinking even as a teenager oh this guy whoever made this doesn't have a a kind view of humanity Uh, (laughs) right right? like he doesn't think much of people uh, right and that movie is explicitly like war it's about war and it's about like how you know men tied sexuality to war so it's not kind to people but i think what you're getting at brandon is like in the shining there's this like creeping sense of dread or just like this like yeah. from the first you know the music is so oppressive it's like Wah, like there's no mm-hmm. moment of uh, of ease or release and i think every movie even a com- a black comedy like uh dr strange love has this i think just bleak view of humanity Mm -hmm. Interesting that you bring that up, Mitch, because I think about a story that I heard where Kubrick and Spielberg were friends and Mm -hmm. Kubrick allegedly would say to Spielberg all the time, man, I really wish I could make movies like you did. I really wish I could make those, you know, family friendly movies that tug at the heart that the heartstrings and Spielberg apparently said, well, I wish I could be more edgy and take more risks like you do. So I would. I think you're totally right, Mitch. He Kubrick does have a pretty bleak just look in general, but it's always interested me that he kind of wanted to be that family friendly filmmaker at times. And, you know, we the closest we got to that was AI, which he wasn't able to finish. Right. Take him to a 
you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? <laughs> When do you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? As soon as possible. As soon as possible. Jack. <laughs> you believe his health might be at stake? Yes. You are concerned about him. And are you concerned about me? Of course I am. Of course you are. Have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Jake, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Whoa. This reminds me of Joe Biden at last night's Democratic debate. Oh, I'm walking away from the mic. That's a 10. That joke's a 10 out of 10. I, I asked both of them to let me tell that joke, too. So. Well, Stanley Kubrick is famous for hundreds of takes. Where do we see the evidence of that? Well, for me, it's the craziness of Nicholson's performance, right? It's unnerving and it's unnatural. The way he says every line in this scene, it can only be achieved by making him deliver these lines over. And I don't want to say it can only be achieved that way, but I I think we see and just how unnatural the way he's speaking evidence of okay, do it again, read it a different way, yeah. do it again, read right. it a different way. And eventually you do find those unique kind of uh, moments. So I, I think that's a testament to Kubrick's specific style. Right. Uh, I think also, like you were saying, Mitch, they both just seem like they're past their comfort zone. They both seem a little kind of exhausted and worn out in a way. And then I think about when it cuts to Nicholson and he's just kind of making like random jerky motions and yeah. Shelley Duvall is just backing up. Yeah. I think one thing about, and I may be getting my scenes confused here, but the staircase scene when... <laughs> now, we're, now we're all thinking. <laughs> when Wendy is is backing up right. the stairs. First of all, terrifying scene. Yeah. And she just keeps swinging the bat at Jack, who Uselessly. is like a predator. Yes. Uselessly stalking at a predator. Mm -hmm. And the whole time you're thinking... Turn your back on him and run up the stairs. Mm -hmm. But like as soon as you turn your back. Yeah, exactly. We're on the same thought. She, <laughs> she can't. She can't turn his back. She can't stop swinging the bat or he will, you know. Uh, anyways, the reason I bring that up is that the whole thing seems very like rhythmic. Yeah. And mm -hmm. choreographed. Yeah. Even though like in a in a raw type way, she swings the bat. She screams and he is just like droning over her with. You know, I'm going to bash your head in or whatever he says to her. And <laughs> the whole thing just to me, come, like it really just makes your skin crawl. Yeah. I, yeah. I think about this is the moment where Jack officially loses, loses it. it. Yeah. So yeah. to speak. And you hear the story earlier about him hurting Danny the night that he was drunk. And as you watch the movie, you kind of think Nicholson's not the best parent. Like he clearly doesn't love his kid but now we see like oh no alcohol or not this scene is evidence that here is a man who hates his family because he believes that they're keeping him from being what he wants to be which i love that we don't know what he wants to be it's kind of like a, a really 
excellent example of toxic masculinity in some sense of just like, oh, I could be doing all this if it only wasn't for my wife. Oh, stupid family's holding me back. I think he wants to be a writer, right? They make that pretty yeah. explicit. Right, but I mean, he's already a writer. Like, you you know what I mean? Like, uh, You can call yourself a writer, but what's he published? Right, he, he wasn't successful. Sure, sure. Yeah, he hasn't been currently. You know, I don't think, right. anyway. Right. I, I'm glad you brought up the alcoholic aspect of it because this scene to me is actually, though it is terrifying, like you're saying, Brandon, it's kind of like the denouement. Like it's the beginning of the wind down for me of the movie. Because uh, yeah. the scariest part, I feel like, is all of the build up to yes. the moment when Wendy sees all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah. When she yeah. sees those pages, it's like, oh, he is gone irrevocably insane. There's no he's there's no coming back. This guy is gone. So everything I feel like in the movie is kind of building up to that. One of the most effective aspects of the film, I feel like, and this is actually in stark contrast to the way Stephen King wrote the character is the fact that we know Jack Nicholson is a bad guy right from the right from the get go. And I'm right. not saying alcoholics are bad guys, but his performance is like dripping with car salesman quality. Like when he's applying for the job, he's like, oh, yeah, my wife's going to love hearing about a guy who was murdered and uh, yeah, doesn't right. bother me. And and we're told he's he's hurt his child. There's right. even a little moment where we see him with a, a dirty magazine when he's applying for the job. So. It's little touches like that that really give us the the sense, oh, he's bad. And the whole movie isn't, is he going to do something bad? It's, oh, he's going to do something bad. How is he going to do it? Right. Well, I, I think about the first time I saw this movie, I think about the scene in the car where Danny is not wearing a seatbelt. He's standing right. up in the car. Well, this and, was the 80s. He, and he's like, Dad, I'm hungry. And Nicholson's essentially like, well... Too bad. Too bad. <laughs> and then the wife goes, hey, isn't this where, you know, the Dahmer party was? And then he's like telling his kid about cannibalism. And like, he doesn't crack a smile. He never looks at his son. And the first time I was like, is this just like a weird performance from Nicholson? I was like, is this this feels like it's either intentional or a moment that was missed. And upon viewing the film, you're like, no, this man has contempt for his family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like how the foundation's laid. There are these things absolutely wrong with this man. Right. But the transition to just full out psycho happens very subtly. Yes. Throughout yeah. throughout the movie. Even like some of these scenes where it's like, okay, he's got some screws loose here. Maybe not subtly. But progressively, because uh, yeah, like, I think of that shot of him just looking out the minutes window. In, he's staring out the window. That's right. He's like, <laughs> it's not subtle, but it's I think it's so. Slow. For me, some of the dramatic scenes with him seem like things that the man that we meet in the beginning of the movie could have done on his own without the influence of the hotel and the supernatural effect on him. They don't seem out of character for him until he's chasing his wife up the stairs and, you know, the axe and all these things like those are the ones where he's like, okay, he snapped. Right. A lot of the other things where he's kind of he yells a couple times and does a couple things, those like those seem like they could have been done by that that man we met in the beginning. The most terrifying scene in the movie for me is on the way to him losing it is when Danny comes into his room and yes. and Jack's yes. just like, oh, come and sit with me, son. And he grabs him like, the yeah, way he grabs yes. him, he's like you know, I'd never do it. And his son just does not looks like. Get me out of here. That's scarier to me than almost anything else in this movie is just this powerless son who's terrified in the hands of 
his evil dad. Well, it's primal. It's a father yeah. is meant to protect you, right? Uh, so it's this complete unnatural thing to see a father being physically, you know, threatening towards a son, even in a subtle way. Yeah, yeah I wrote down in my notes, you never hurt mommy, would you? And then the longest pause in the history of cinema before he goes, what do you mean? Like, it's just <laughs> super uncomfortable. Right. Do you guys think the hotel is actually supernatural? Yeah, I don't. I think I think that's why I enjoy this movie. I know that there's whole like documentaries and stuff like that, but I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't. I love supernatural stuff. I feel like I just don't think it is playing it. I think it's a guy who loses his mind. That's what me it's too. About. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's what I like about what you were saying, Brandon, that every this movie at the end of the day is just about a guy who tries to kill his family. Like it's we've right. seen bloodier, more extreme movies like every six minutes it's not about what's being done it's about his decaying mental state right i think to me the more that's the more interesting film than ooh, it's supernatural that's why i say i don't really care and i think kubrick sets it up so again you can dig deeper if you want to or you like it's kind of the movie can be whatever you see it as i think with kubrick which is why this film is so talked about Mm. i think the hardest thing for me to watch was anything involving Danny. Yeah. Especially as like a father now, just him riding around the hotel by himself mm-hmm. and that high pitched every time those twins would show up or anything, that high pitched noise. I was about to lose yeah. my mind. Like those <laughs> those scenes to me yeah. Uh, yeah. Were, were the most grating scenes in in almost any movie I've ever watched. He's so vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, so vulnerable. You know, the little boy didn't even know he was in a horror movie. Gosh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah. Right. They protected him. One of the things in the movie that really jumped out to me on this viewing is to me the the bathtub scene was always just like, ew, it's creepy and gross. But what I got this time is uh, Wendy goes running in to find her husband and says that their son is hurt, that he's scratched up, that he's been injured by this room. And the father, the protector of the family, who's supposed to be, goes in the room. And upon seeing a nude woman in the tub, he decides (laughs) he's going to, you know, engage with her physically. And that to me, I was like, someone, this woman potentially just tried to kill your child and this is the action that you're going to take? Well, I think it's it's so much about just, again, the word unsettling is what comes to mind. It's it's not explained. I think I think what makes this movie so creepy is the sense of I don't know why I should be afraid. Right. Right. I see the woman in the tub and there's something I just I don't know what's going on here, but there's something threatening about it. Same with like at the end where there's like the guy in the bear costume. I don't know what's going on, but I know it's weird and I need to get out. I'm getting out of here right away. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, Definitely scarier than a guy chasing me with an axe, which is why, again, I feel like everything building up to the crazy axe scene is the scariest stuff. And then it kind of unwinds with him actually trying to kill his family. Stanley was famous for being very difficult to work with. Does that matter in the long run? What's more important, legacy or kindness? Whenever I hear people, actors who worked with him, complain about Kubrick, it's always, 
He was very meticulous. He made us do hundreds of takes, which to that standpoint, I'm kind of like, you're at work, like shut up and do your job. You know what I mean? Which I'm sure that there's other stories and there's more, but I think in the lens of him being very meticulous and and a perfectionist, yeah, I'm sure that's difficult to work with, but look at how amazing his movies are. And, you know, just imagine being a part of one of those. Just imagine as an actor being a part of something that's woven into the fabric of American cinema. I'm not criticizing you, but I am going to push back. That okay. feels a little bit like hero worship, where okay. if you I feel like if you were on the set, uh, it would be frustrating. Like if you'd been living in the same clothes as Shelley Duvall or Jack Nicholson for a, a year. Right. Sure. And you've been asked for the 40th time to walk from the car to the front door of the hotel. And you don't know why, because he's again, so meticulous. He's not sharing his thought process. Like he's just, I want a different take. I think that would be incredibly psychologically tolling at least like if you have a boss that micromanages you by asking you to do something more than once at the office, you're like, uh, right. This is like 40, 50 times a year filming when most of the time these kind of shoots would be done. And you know, a third, a fourth that time. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think of, the best comparison I can think of is being an actor on the television show, The West Wing, you know, where Aaron Sorkin was notorious for last minute rewrites, you know, yes. all of the crazy walk and talk, steady cam shots. You know, they were there till three, four in the morning mm-hmm. shooting. And I think you you knew what you were getting yourself into when you signed up to be you know, on, on one of these sets, on one of these shows, movies, I think, I think if you agree to be in a movie that Stanley Kubrick is directing, you know, maybe apart from like his first movie, you know, cause that would be, no one knows at that point. But like, I think at this point, you know what you're getting yourself into if you're agreeing to be on a Stanley Kubrick movie. I'd, I'd written in my notes, Kubrick is the anti uh, Sorkin because he <laughs> Sorkin makes very clear what he's trying to tell you over and over again in a speech where Kubrick is not telling you anything. So that just made me laugh that you brought up Sorkin. Interesting that you mentioned that, Brandon. They brought Kubrick in to do Spartacus, and I Mm -hmm. think he was replacing another director that they had had issues with. And Kubrick at this point was kind of an up-and-comer, and he was so meticulous on set and so, like, full Kubrick. And yeah, the actors hated working with him. They didn't enjoy it. And Kubrick also didn't like the movie when it when it came out because he was saying, you know, I didn't get to make the movie that I wanted to make. And that's when he decided I'm never directing a movie again unless I get final cut. I respect it, but I do kind of want to caution. I feel like we give people license or extra permission when we view them as geniuses. Sure. Uh, If anyone else had been this way. I don't right. think we would give them the same forgiveness. If his movies were bad, we would we would be like, oh, well, of course. Yeah. And and I, yeah. I do feel like it's unfair to just be like, well, that's what shine up. Like these are actors are working, right? They're they're trying to feed, you know, they're trying to put a meal on the table. <laughs> so uh, I especially like sympathize for Shelley Duvall, who he was notoriously they he was very cruel to her is what we know about that right. uh, filming situation. And I think. You don't have to be cruel to get a good product. And the reason I would say that is uh, Shelley Duvall made lots of great movies with Robert Altman before she made this movie with Kubrick. And Robert Altman was an improvisational filmmaker. He came in, he had a loose idea and they went. Uh, So I don't think it's necessary 
to film the way Kubrick filmed to make something great, but it was his style. So I, I don't yeah. I, I don't want to just give him like open reign on, you know, he gets to do whatever he wants and we should just accept it because that's what he did. I think it could be cruel in some moments. And I, w- you know, I would agree in that you don't need to be cruel to make a good product. I think more about these classic A-list actors. I guess I'm I'm generally coming from a lens of Spartacus where they were all A-list actors who when I read back to what they were saying, they all just seem very whiny to me, which and it's it's hard when you're reading and especially like you were saying Mitch when I have a bias towards Kubrick and I get that it's frustrating, you know, we've Mitch, you and I have done some theater like it can be very frustrating when you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. But I do feel like to some extent, like it might be hard, but in some situations, that's the job. I think I just push back on the idea of that's the job. I think if you're willing to do this for the sake of great art, that's great. And you should buckle up and go for it. But I don't think we should expect that of every actor. Right. Mm-hmm. That is above and beyond what the call of uh, of being an actor is uh, like to physically punish and torment these people. Uh, I, I just don't think we should well, suck it up, actor. You know, like it is psychologically tolling to ask someone to do the same stuff over and over again the way he did. So I, I don't want to just chalk that up to suck it up. I think I can definitely see both sides here. Kubrick had like an IQ of over 200. And when you look at other people throughout history, like we're talking about like Da Vinci, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, those are 200 level IQ. Yeah, this was this was literally Kubrick's canvas. This was his art, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I don't know. And I, I realize it involves other people, so it's different. But when Da Vinci was painting Mona Lisa or The Last Supper. There's no limit to the amount of takes or tries that he, you know, would have taken to get this perfect. And I think I think Kubrick was just the ultra perfectionist genius Mm. level director. Mm. Right. I think that's what makes it so interesting. It's a great point you bring up because it's where humanity meets art. Well, Stephen King hated this movie. (laughs) Famously, (laughs) does that matter at all? He made a worse, a much worse movie a decade yeah. later. I'd like to hearken back to last week when we talked about the Maleficent episode. And the thing we were saying is, you know, with those live action Disney remakes, the original is always going to be there. And that's for a long time. I used to think of adaptations from book to film like, well, you want it to be as faithful as possible. But now that I'm older and I think about it more, I'm like, well, you're always going to have the book. And if the book inspires you on some level to make a movie that's not faithful, but you're going to do your own twist on it, then I say go for it. The book's always going to be there. So why would you want a movie that's exactly the book? I think that it's it's two different art forms and the director should be allowed to do what they want with it. I agree with the notion that it belongs to when you give up the rights, you've given up the rights, right? If you've sold the intellectual property, it's not yours anymore. So you have to be less precious about that. than I think Stevens being I can understand on a personal level, though, why he would be upset because uh, he has this great quote of saying uh, my version of The Shining is hot. 
and uh, Kubrick's is cold. And the respect that his version, King's version, is is very much more about a good man being turned into a bad man, kind of like Breaking Bad, right? Uh, right? Where Kubrick's is more about awful, awful people, right? Like a bad man right. who does a bad thing. So it's, it's hot. It's hot versus cold. Yeah, it's much more bleak. I think Kubrick's film is a masterpiece. I want to be clear, yeah. like The Shining is one of my favorite movies. And I, I think when you watch clips from the 97, I've only seen clips. I, I couldn't sit through more than clips. But I think the issue I have with Stephen King's interpretation for for film is it's more interested in the acts of violence than the threat of violence, which right. I've kind of mentioned already. And I think that's what makes. Kubrick's film so so much better because it's about the threatening, foreboding atmosphere. And I think that's what Kubrick does best. This this atmosphere and tone of something terrifying. Where do we see Stanley's influence in film today? Hmm? You don't see it everywhere, which is kind of why. I wanted us to ask how innovative was Kubrick, because I think you watch his movies and you think there's no one like him. But then so many guys who make movies, a lot of them say he's their favorite director and his work is just studied by so many film scholars and filmmakers. So when I see movies that take their time, that aren't afraid to maybe be a little slower with their pace and that aren't afraid to maybe pull back on the dialogue. It's, you know, it's not so much with anything technical that he did, which you could literally point to Star Wars, which came out a couple years after 2001 and see that 2001 paved the way for that movie looking as good as it did. Like that's, that's a fact. But I think more about Kubrick's writing and his character development and things like that. And I think that's where I see more of his influence. So I think it's hard because Stanley was nothing if not ahead of his time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And The Shining was pretty famously disliked upon its initial release. And I feel like you almost have to be removed from the era to really identify these people who maybe were like Kubrick's, you know, throughout time. Like, I think it's hard to identify him right now. And he was a very lauded director while he was alive. I'm not saying he wasn't, but things like The Shining, you know, it took a few years. It took some time for people to really fall in love with it. Um, So I think it, I think really the him being ahead of his time in many ways is is one thing I point to. Yeah, like movies like 2001 also uh, were famously not understood by a lot of critics when they came out. And they're consistently on, you know, the top 100 movies of all time, usually in the top 10, yeah. I think, uh, 2001. But yeah, I was trying to think of an example in my in my mind, because like it reminds me of like a lot of musicians will say there's an influence of the Beatles. Right. That's omnipresent right. in Western music. Right. Kubrick is not a Beatles to me. Like he's like a unique, singular kind of weird. Like he's like a Floris Foster Jenkins or like a <laughs> Daniel Johnson or like just a kind of a weirder artist that yeah. has the respect of many because he was such a visionary. Right. So your Spielbergs are your Beatles and, and everyone likes that. Right. But I think it is more difficult to trace Kubrick's influence because not many people can imitate what he did. Yeah. Uh, he was he was so unique in what he was doing. Right. Yeah. I think about a movie like 2001 
and I hesitate to say this, but I feel like that's a movie that's been imitated a few times and oh, yeah. n- never even come close to being duplicated. I think of movies like, you know, most recently Ad Astra to some extent. I think mm-hmm. of Interstellar, you know, movies like that, which I feel like I don't think that they would say that they're trying to do 2001, but I think 2001 definitely kind of created a thoughtful space movie in in a way. So I can't think of another movie that comes close to doing what 2001 does, even, you know, however many years later. He's just playing on a different level, I feel like, than so many other filmmakers. He was so intelligent, like you said, Brandon. So he trusts his audiences to make of his movies what they want and what they will. And and I feel like a lot of people read so far into things and they they actually just take what they need. Right. Like uh, The Shining is famous. There's a documentary room 237. Yeah. That's got all these off the wall. You know, uh, The Shining's about uh, Native Americans. It's about imperialism. It's about the moon landing. It's about the Russians, it's about Minotaurs and Greek mythology. Like part of what I think about when I think about Kubrick is like guys dressing up in pajamas because they're conspiracy theorists. Right. I think. That is, in some way, part of his legacy. Someone who was so meticulous and so intelligent that he could make something uh, appear effortless that was incredibly, incredibly detailed and picturesque and surgical. So I don't think we're going to see another Kubrick, at least soon. I think there are great filmmakers, but no other Kubricks. Right. I I think of another example is I heard when I was really starting to get into movies, I heard a lot about. Clockwork Orange is one of the most shocking movies ever made. And to me, th- I was a little more naive and I think I was thinking it's it's like an old movie. Like I'm sure he probably like jaywalks or like farts on camera and people were like, <laughs> "Oh, I can't believe it." Oh. So I sat t- <laughs> I sat down to watch a Clockwork Orange thinking like this is probably going to be pretty soft. And even today, I was stunned. It's incredibly jarring. It's incredibly In- jarring. Incredibly jarring. Yeah. And it needs I'm to sorry. be. Well, who do we see today among the A-list directors who most closely resembles a Kubrick? Mitch has already said he doesn't believe we can no, really so. nail someone down as the new Kubrick. So who just closely resembles a Kubrick-style director? I think the closest is Denis Villeneuve, the director of movies like Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. I think what I like about him is that he's innovative with his filmmaking, but his movies also feel incredibly personal. Like Blade Runner is a gorgeous looking movie. Arrival is a gorgeous looking movie. All of his movies are beautifully shot, but they all have very deep emotional themes behind them. I think of the movie Enemy, which is one of his earlier films. That's almost straight Kubrick in that there's all this like imagery with uh, there's all this imagery with spiders and with keys and all this other stuff. He's just Denis is just so thoughtful and cares so much about the films that he's making. And he also I feel like his films just have such a variety. (laughs) The big thing that keeps him away from Kubrick in my mind is 
Kubrick directed Dr. Strangelove, which is one of the funniest movies ever made. And I just don't ever see Denis directing a, a comedy like that, which, you know, which is fine. I'm not saying everybody has to be Stanley Kubrick, but whenever I watch a Denis Villeneuve film, I see some of the things that I love about Kubrick's filmmaking in his work. I guess when I think about this question, there's this Stanley Kubrick quote I heard in college uh, <laughs> that led to a season of agnosticism for me. That was the most terrifying thing about the universe isn't that it's hostile, it's that it's indifferent. Uh, mm. And I think that theme is really prevalent in Kubrick's movies. This I feel like there's a lot of distance uh, from the characters and there's a lack of judgment. There's an indifference, uh, right? It's here's the way life is. This is our plight. And it's not always as bleak as that, but I think there is this sense of just look and see uh, how these characters are. So, I've, yeah, I've already said I don't think there is a Kubrick today that really shares that uh, same kind of mindset. But if I had to pick someone, I'd maybe go Paul Thomas Anderson, just because yeah. I think his films, they're, they're rich character studies that I think share uh, a similar portrayal without judgment or, or passion in some cases. There's a distance right. uh, from the characters. Here's who they are. up our episode on the genius Stanley Kubrick and his masterpiece The Shining. Thank you for joining us. We would love to hear your opinion on our episode or any other movie related topic. So if you haven't already, hop on over to our Facebook page and join the conversation. We can be found at the Is It Really Podcast. And don't forget, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're up to it, please give us a rating and a review. We would really appreciate it. Join us next week for our very special one-year anniversary episode where we will be revisiting the beloved Harry Potter franchise. I know I've said this before, but you are really not going to want to miss this one. We'll see you then. I'd like to harken back to last week when we talked about uh, what? Just hearken. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've noticed you say hearken sometimes. That's all. <laughs>